0: um it's a pleasure to see everybody um let me just finish opening up real quick um and then uh, to be honest let's just uh, let's open in prayer father god we just come before you we give you thanks we give you thanks for your son the lord jesus christ as we get to come on this sunday and to come and remember your son and to see what he's done for us father um personally father i'm so blown away that you would even send your son to come and die on that cross for for, for my sins father and that i would even have a chance to have eternal life father i give you thanks for your son we just give you thanks for this time we get to spend together in your word and we just pray father that uh, whatever it is that you have a desire for us to see that you would show it to us father that you would remove from me anything father that would prevent me from getting the words across and that you father would open the hearts of those in this room we give you thanks in the name of the lord jesus christ amen um in the mid in the mid 80s so 1980s um i always feel like the 80s are 20 years ago but the 80s are almost 40 years ago um, in the mid 80s, there was a girl, her name was Beth. She was an elementary school, um, just an elementary school kid, uh, and one day, her name was Beth, uh, Beth Usher. One day, the school calls her mom, and they tell her that they have to rush Beth to the hospital. Um, they told her that she was having a medical emergency. So the mom rushes down to the hospital, they already took the girl there, um, and what could only be described as, as she just well, she couldn't describe it, that was the point. She couldn't describe what she was seeing. It seemed that when she saw Beth, Beth's, one of the side of Beth, it's kind of like a stroke. One half of her body, she was able to move her hands, talk and do everything. And the other side of her body was just completely motionless, almost drooping. It, was, it, was, it looked like a stroke. Um, when they went to the doctors, the doctors themselves were baffled. They couldn't figure out what, what was causing this, what was happening. They weren't even sure it was a stroke. They just saw that she was having these symptoms. Um, but once they were able to kind of start monitoring her, um, do different tests, they realized she wasn't having a stroke; she was having a seizure. Um, for, for, for those of you who are here, when my brother was here, my brother uh, he passed out one time in the back row, and he didn't he didn't necessarily have a seizure, but he was prone to having seizures when he fainted. So for me, when that happened, oh my heart my heart sank. In the moment, you gotta you gotta act tough and be like, oh I gotta I gotta, I gotta pick my brother, up, I gotta take him out. But in the reality, I was I was I was petrified. I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, but in this case, that's what was happening to this girl. Um, they couldn't figure out what was going on. They ran through all the scans. They were doing everything to figure out what was causing it. And the only thing they could see was on, the, on her brain scans, they saw that there was atrophy on one side of her brain. So if you ever look at the charts for when they do like a CAT scan, CT scans, I, I have no idea which scans are the ones that do, do all the, the brain scans. But they were seeing that one side of her brain was deteriorating, almost like it was missing, it was gone. And they believed that was causing it. They didn't know what was causing this deterioration, but they figured that this had to do something with those seizures. Um, so they continued to run tests, and for, for days weeks at a time, all they could do was run tests and send her home because they had no other way to treat what was going on. Um, at the worst part, she would have about 100 seizures a day. Um, if that's 24 hours in a day, you're looking at, you're looking at three, four seizures every hour, um, depending on how, how hard the seizures are. Um, you know, it can be a few seconds to a couple minutes to, you know, no, nobody knows what, but she was having at least 100 of them a day. And so for her mom to try to take care of her, she had to spend all this time um, making sure that she was okay because if she had a seizure, they would have to lay her down, put her to rest so that she didn't hurt, she didn't hurt herself because if she had it while she was standing, she was going to fall immediately and get injured. Um, it was really rough on the mom. She couldn't figure out what to do. You almost can't eat or bathe or do anything, go to the bathroom because you can't leave, you can't leave a girl like that alone or else she's gonna, get, she's gonna get hurt. But one day the mom realized that the only time she didn't have a seizure was when she was laying down in front of the TV next to her brother and they were watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. For some reason, there was something in the the way his voice spoke, maybe the way the show was presented, but for some reason, for those 30 minutes that Mr. Rogers was on TV, and it was back in the 80s, just before, you know, VCRs were, were commonplace, you know, she would not have seizures. So they actually planned their day around Mr. Rogers' neighborhood episodes so that mom could take a shower, go to the restroom, do different things so that that way she knew her daughter would be okay. So um, months went by, they went to the doctors and they were continuing to try to figure out what was going on. Eventually. Um, It was two years before they figured out what was going on. So two years of of having these seizures, 100 times a day, sitting in front of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, the only time you had solace, and they figured out that she suffered from Rasmussen's encephalitis, which uh, to this day, they actually don't know what causes it. A lot of people believe it's a virus that causes it, but what it does is it it, it does slowly eat away at a hemisphere in your brain. Um, there really isn't. There really, at the time, there really wasn't ways to treat it. The only thing they could do was treat the symptoms, try to help her lose the inflammation in her brain, um, allow her to rest so she wasn't she wasn't trying to be doing too much and, and cause her body strain. But at the end of at the end of the day, there was only one way they knew that they could bring some semblance of normalcy to her life. Um, they would have to remove the part of the brain that was deteriorating. Um, It had only only been done a couple times, and uh, coincidentally, the doctor that had been able to do it was Ben Carson. Um, You might recognize that name. He's the the neurosurgeon that was running for president a few years ago. He was the only one that was able to ever do it successfully, or I don't know if he was the only one that was able to do it successfully, but he was one of the ones that people knew could do it successfully, but he'd only done it a handful of times. So they decided that one day they were going to have to do that they were going to have to do, if she wanted any semblance of a normal life, she would need to have the surgery. And so they they booked the surgery, and about a week before the surgery, the mom had an idea. She was going to go, she was going to email, or not email, because it's the 80s. She doesn't call. Uh, I know, this is just like me, like, oh, I thought you would email. Um, before the age of Google, before the age of being able to look stuff up, she somehow found a way to call the TV station that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was originally broadcasting from. Uh, she was able to talk to the... Um, the secretary that was there for the show, and she just asked, hey, is there any way for Mr. Rogers to write her a letter or send her an autograph, photograph um, that she could have? Because Mr. Rogers has been able to help her because every time she watches the show it's the only time she doesn't suffer from these seizures. And so the, the secretary said, hey, you know, we're gonna go, we're gonna see what we can do, and we're gonna do whatever we can to help you in that way. So that same week before the surgery, uh, they get a call. The mom picks up the phone, she's on the phone for a little bit, and she tells Beth, Beth, we have a friend on the phone for you. And for Beth, who's been going through this in her entire life, she didn't have any friends. She was always hitting, having these seizures, she couldn't go to school. In reality, there was no one in her life besides her mother that would be able to help her with these things. So for her to hear that she had a friend on the phone, she was blown away. So she gets handed to the phone, and the person on the phone is Fred Rogers. He had taken his time to call her and ask her about the surgery. And for over an hour, she was able to talk to Mr. Rogers. Um, you know, the, the, the I was reading, I was, I was watching a documentary. I was reading the, the article that came with it. And she told everything to Mr. Rogers. She felt that she could pour her entire soul out to her, her. Everything that she was worried about. She talked about how she was worried about dying, worried about leaving her family, worried that even if she did have the surgery and survive, for some reason, she thought that nobody would want to be her friend. And she poured her entire soul out to him. And he talked to her, and he encouraged her, and he told her that, that the surgeons and her mom and that God would watch over her as she had this surgery. And he told her, I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna check up on you, but I know that everything's gonna turn out to be okay. And so, out of the blue, Mr. Rogers decides to call, give her a call, and so it's, 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 it's incredible to think that he would even take the time to come and give her a phone call before her surgery. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of what I wanted, I wanted to talk about this morning, this idea of being a neighbor, I think if, if anyone has seen um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you know that when he walks in, he's singing that jingle, and he's taking off one sweater, putting on his cardigan, putting on his sneakers. The end of the song, the end of the song ends with "Won't won't you be my neighbor?" And that's that's kind of the topic I wanted to talk about today. If you guys want to open up your Bibles, we'll be speak uh, we'll be reading out of Luke, Luke chapter 10, and we will be starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and let's, I'm going to read through the passage real quickly. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, to him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he being Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that was on the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he had arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, giving them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he, be, and he, being the lawyer, said, "He who showed mercy on him." And Jesus said to him, "Go and do likewise." Um, so we'll start. We'll start again from the beginning, verse 25. Uh, we see that there's this lawyer, and he gets up and he he wants to put Jesus to the test. Um, the word here for lawyer is nomikos. Um, It's very specific to a a legal type of expert. Um, The word nomos is law. Um, If you were to look up the word rightly or lawfully, it would be lominos. So there's this idea that that he's he's, he's well-versed in the law, what would be the Torah, what would be the Old Testament, um, and he has kind of a background in it. Um, If we look back in the Old Testament, we see that this, this idea of a lawyer kind of stems from the idea of a scribe. And so in the pre exile Israel um, most of the scribes of the lawyers were there to do um, they were to do just basic uh, nominal things but they would also be taught in in the actual law the actual scriptures they would they would work with the people that were that were reading these laws um, and we even see that that they would do what you would think a lawyer would do, they would take notes, they would be like a notary, they would do all these different things. They were doing a lot of things for the people of Israel, for the land, for the government, and they were there for a long time. So even, even before all that, they were there. Um, and so after the exile, just post-exile Israel, they started taking more, at least in this sense, in this word, and the ones that he's re- he's speaking with, they took more of a of a religious standpoint. So they weren't just what we would call secular lawyers; they were they were religious lawyers. And then even now, during Jesus's time, the lawyers were working very close with the Saudis and the Pharisees. And when we read through the scriptures, when we read through the through the the Gospels, we see that usually they're they're always together. Usually they're hanging out and doing you know doing whatever. Um, when you read it in Luke, Luke usually has kind of a harsh view on lawyers, and so sometimes it kind of seeps into the writing. But essentially, a lawyer there is kind of like the lawyer we think of today. Um, for the most part, I would say that um, the only way that I can think of another, another way of describing the amount of work that the lawyers, when they grew up, they, they started as children. They started as children learning to read, to do arithmetic, to do whatever they needed, and they were, they were, they were being built up so that they would eventually become the lawyers that they are today. Um, typically today, if someone wants to become a lawyer, they don't start from a child. You know, Usually they go to college, they go to law school, they pass the bar, and then they start doing the work that they can. And eventually you know, they hope to break into their own law office and do different things. But usually we think about people that become lawyers now starting at 18. This is way different. They started way earlier. The only other profession I can think of that I would say is pretty close to being the same way would be like a gymnast. Like usually you have gymnasts that grow up as kids, and they do, uh, they do that for from, from, from being a baby. I know there's a couple a couple kids here in the chapel that do baby gymnastics. So that is a thing. And so to me, that would be, that, that, it's a thing. I, it's a, I swear it's a thing. Um, and, so for, and so it would be just like that. Growing up from such a young age, being taught one thing, being, being groomed and, and trained to do one thing so that when you turn 18, you go to the Olympics and do whatever. It's kind of that same way. The only other thing I can think of also would be like a musician. Usually uh, most famous musicians will tell you that they, they started when they were a young, a young boy. There's actually a commercial that I saw. I think I saw it online. I don't know if it's on TV. Um, it's a very good commercial. Uh, disclaimer, I'm not promoting the commercial. I'm just, I'm just telling you what the commercial says. Um, I just want to let you know. Uh, it starts with Elton John. And again, for whatever intents and purposes, whatever you think about Elton John, we're going to put that on the side. We're just going to talk about the commercial. Uh, it starts with Elton John. He's coming down. In his, he's, he's in his house. You know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the evening. He sits at the, the piano, and he starts hitting the notes for one of his famous songs, Your Song. Um, if you're a Nelton John fan, you know which song he's talking about. He starts hitting the notes, and as the commercial keeps panning, all of a sudden he's in front of 50,000 people at a stadium, and as he's playing the song. The commercial keeps panning; it's like the camera keeps panning. It just keeps turning left, and the next thing you know, he's in a smaller club playing for probably a couple thousand people. He's a little bit younger. It pans over, and now he's playing probably for. Um, he's probably he's playing on a plane. He's probably playing as a private a private musician for somebody that rented him out, and he continues to play the song. It goes to him playing at his local bar when he was in college, um, playing the song, and then it goes to him in high school performing. It keeps going, and all of a sudden now he's an he's a adolescent boy performing um, on the piano in front of his like, piano teacher Amy, and he's you know, playing the song. And the, the way the commercial ends is now there's this little boy wakes up on Christmas morning, runs downstairs, and sees that there's a piano wrapped in wrapping paper. And the point of the commercial is just to, to say that sometimes you need to feed that nature of a child in order for them to maybe become someone great in their craft. So that's another way that I think about it is, is, is that commercial. When I saw the commercial, I was blown away. I was like crying. I was like, ah, that's a good commercial. <laughs> I don't even know what they were selling, but I was like, it's a good commercial. Um, but, but that's the point, right? They, they grew up doing that type of, doing that legal stuff, doing, doing reading and writing and, and, and learning the law, and that's how they grew up to eventually become the lawyers that they are, uh, present day in this in this in this passage, um, and so here we see that he puts him to the test. That word "test" um, or in some versions "tempt," um, it's it's the 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 original word is ek, ek perazo, which if you break it up, "ek" is "to" and "to" and "out," "to" and "from" outwardly, and "perazo" is "test." Um, usually, when you think of the word "tempt," you think of Jesus being tempted in the desert, but in this case, the words are a little different. The original word for Jesus being tempted in the desert is more. Um, focused on trying to prove something and we know that when Jesus attempted in the desert the devil is trying to prove that he can make Jesus sin or overcome or do something. In this sense he's really just asking Jesus this question to test him and hope to get an answer out of him. Um, again when you read through when you read through Luke uh, lawyers are looking at that very negatively so most people assume that he's trying to put Jesus in this way. We see that a lot of different um, Pharisees, Sadducees whenever they ask him questions they're trying to trip him up because they want to they want to have a reason to arrest Jesus and put him to death. So in this case, we don't. It, the, the scripture doesn't really say why he's saying it. I'm just saying that there's, there's different thoughts around it. Well, he's trying to put him to the test. And then um, he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I feel like whenever Jesus goes to different towns, he probably gets that question a hundred times. Uh, we see in the scriptures, especially in Luke 18 and Matthew 19, we see the telling of, of the, the the rich young ruler who also asked him the exact same question so this isn't a question that Jesus is not ready for it's not one that he hasn't had before it's just one that he encounters all the time. Um, I don't know how he does it if you ask if I the same people kept asking me the same question I could kind of I'd be kind of annoyed but that's that's me and so, and so we know that in the story of the rich young ruler, he asked him, Jesus tells him, you know, are you following these specific laws, essentially following all the laws? And the rich young ruler's like, yeah, of course I am. That's the easy part, I can do all that. And then Jesus tells him, we'll sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and the story goes that he was, he was, he was disappointed that Jesus said that because he didn't want to do it. So this question has come up before. Jesus has given different, different types of answers for this one. Um, but in this case, he says to this lawyer um, in verse 26, Uh, what is written in the law, how do you read it? And so the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you shall live. Of course, he's taking that that passage from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Moses gives this passage, he's telling the people of Israel to do these things. Uh, In Deuteronomy, we know that he is in the beginning of Deuteronomy, he's talking to the people. He's trying to remind them that God has brought them out, God has brought them out and that he wants them to be, um, to be obedient to God, to love God, to honor God, to do all these different things. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them this one. And then Deuteronomy goes on and he continues to give different, different um, just more laws. Um, and so essentially he's repeating this one. And to be honest, when I read this, I, almost, I can almost hear the monotony in his voice um, of course, he grew up learning this verse. He probably had that one in the back of his pocket ready to go whenever anyone asked him what, to, what about the law. And so sometimes I almost feel like I kind of identify with that question. You know, when someone asks you something simple like, you know, like well, you know, how do you honor God? It's like, well, you, know, you honor God by obedience. And so sometimes I feel like the answers that we give people are very... We almost feel like, of course, this is what we're supposed to do. Um, personally, I grew up going to, to, to church. I grew up in the chapels. I grew up in vacation Bible school, going to Sunday school. I grew up in Tuesday night studies and, and different things. So sometimes I do catch myself when people ask me some of these questions, that I almost kind of just let the words fall out of my mouth. Well, of course you're going to honor God. Of course you pray to God. Of course you love the Lord your God with all your... you know. And so I almost feel like he's kind of doing the same thing where he's like, well, obviously the law, this is what the law says. You, know, you can almost kind of see that he's just like just throwing it out there. And so, Jesus kind of tells him, you answered correctly, do so, and live. I feel like usually, when, you know, the, the, the scriptures always talk about Jesus could see their heart, he could see what they were trying to do, and sometimes the Lord tries to turn it on and turn it on them so that they would have to answer a question that they weren't prepared for. But in this case, he's kind of almost saying like, okay, that's great, go and do it. You know, it's almost like the Lord gave him an out. He, the Lord doesn't always give people outs, but he almost sounds like he gave this lawyer an out. And so, the lawyer being just like any human being on this planet, um, decides to keep coming back for more. And so he goes in and he tells them, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? That's such a lawyer question, isn't it? Because he's obviously not going to argue the law. He's not going to say that the law is wrong. He's not going to say that the law um, is wrong in this case or that the law is not clear. He knows that the law is clear. He knows exactly what is required of him. And I feel like even today... um, I mean, I've been to court a few times, um, nothing serious, but uh, you know, if the lawyers are for you, they're great. If the lawyers are against you, you hate them. It's, it's the craziest thing, but what, what ends up happening is I think nowadays, as the prosecution, if you're a lawyer and you're on the prosecuting side, your job is to create a narrative so that, so that whatever you're, you're prosecuting against, whatever you're going against, it's without a reasonable doubt, without a reasonable, I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna say, without a reasonable doubt on the defense, you don't have to prove innocence. You just have to prove that it's not without a reasonable doubt. And so I think lawyers are pretty good at being able to come up with different questions that kind of get you to trip up or to, to poke holes in your story. So him knowing that he cannot poke a hole in the law because they're following the law to the T, he asks a different question. Well, who is my neighbor? It's such a hard question to answer, right? Because it's kind of like, well, who would you say your neighbor that's up to That's up to anybody to really define. And so he's asking Jesus himself, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus goes and he tells him this parable um, about a man going down. So um, it's, so it says, "A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho And this in this story it would have made sense to these people because they would have known they would have known what he was talking about, where he was talking about. And so this road from Jerus, or from Jerusalem to Jericho it's about um, some scholars put this specific road at least during Jesus time to be about uh, 19, 20 miles. Um, Jerusalem would have been uh, to the west, Jerusalem would have been to the west. Jericho would have been to the north, um, but it was it was very well known for being a dangerous road. Um, most scholars call the road the Way of the Blood, just because there was so there were so many robbers, there were so many murderers, there was so much action going on that road that it was just it was crazy. It was it was you, you would almost have to be a fool to go down that road. You had to have good reason to go down that road. It was actually so bad that the Roman Empire actually put a fort on that road and they had a garrison patrolling that road over and over again to catch these bandits to stop anything from happening but even a garrison and even a fort can't cover 20 miles so the road was well known for being um, dangerous and so and also again this is the area that it's in is very low rainfall so it's very dry desolate it's exactly what you would think of when you would think of like a dangerous road and that's exactly what it was um, and so the scripture says that he fell upon he fell among some robbers and um, and they stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And so we get this idea that he, this man, is walking down, and he gets he gets hit up by these robbers. Um, usually, you think of if someone is a robber, you think they're just they're just there to steal things, and it's usually petty theft, and you don't think of them as being aggressive. Then, for I think for a lot of people, you kind of understand, you know. Most 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 robbers are, are criminals of opportunity. They just want to get in and get out before anything happens because they don't want to get caught, they don't want to get arrested, they don't want to go to jail. But these guys are so bad that they don't even care about the opportunity. They're gonna go. Up, they're gonna go much farther and actually beat this man half to death. Um, so we see that the, he he just runs into these men of of, of pure a pure evil. And they go in and they they beat him up. They humiliate him and they strip him. They take everything off him. They probably took whatever whatever money, whatever jewelry he had on. They probably took most of his clothing because they could have resold it or used it or done something. And essentially, they're they're leaving this man naked on the road, um, without anything, without any idea, without any care in the world of what would happen to this man. Um, The word here that's used for they stripped him of his clothes is actually the same word they use when they describe Jesus being stripped. Um, before his crucifixion, so it's almost—it's almost telling that the Lord is using this example, this language, to describe something that He Himself would eventually endure. But here, He's being—everything's being taken off. He's being—he's just being left behind. And even just this word—they they, they said that they beat Him. The word here is plagos, which is actually used throughout the Scriptures. Um, when they think of the, ten, the 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 plagues that hit Egypt, it would be this word. Um, it's also translated sometimes as they, they they put stripes on him. So we think of also of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's beaten, they leave stripes on him. So the language that Jesus is using to to, to tell this story, it's you know when we read it, it's, we kind of gloss over. It, but in reality, he's saying this man, they took everything from him. He is naked on the road, and they have beat him to a bloody pulp. Um, the language here, even for this idea of half dead, I can't pronounce the word, um, but This idea of half-dead, this idea of what they did to him, they didn't even care. They weren't even trying to kill him. Because usually you think, if these are robbers and they don't want to leave any evidence and they don't want to leave any witnesses, they got to kill the guy fast and move on. That wasn't their intention. Their intention was to beat this man. And whether this man died or not, they didn't care because they enjoyed the beating more than they did anything else they were doing. And so Jesus is trying to describe what this guy is enduring. He's not even getting beat up for for any good reason. They just want to lash out at him. And they leave him there. And so Jesus continues to tell this story, and he tells how, now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, he came to the place and saw him, the man on the road, the man half naked, the man beaten half to death, and he also passed by on the other side. We know that this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, we know that there were there were many there were, that road would be traveled by the priests and the Levites as they were going from the temple to the other major city that would have that they would, where they would house all the priests and all the Levites. So we know this road is being traveled by these men. In modern day, we would think of as if you know the Pope himself or a priest or a pastor or you know whatever religious leader you want to throw in. They're literally walking by, seeing this man on the road, and they're just like, "Okay, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to step around him." Um, depending on who you ask, depending on what Bible scholars you, you talk to, depending on whether you talk to you know, a, Jewish, a Jewish rabbi or any, any different person, there's just been ideas of why these men would have left. I don't necessarily know if Jesus really wanted to point that, that picture of why they would have left. I think he's just trying to emphasize on the fact that these men were leaving him there. But some people would say that the Levites were going to pass by because if they were going to go do some priestly duty, um, they would need to remain ceremonially clean. So to them, it's like, well, we're justified. I can't touch this man, because if I touch this man, then I won't be able to go and offer up a sacrifice to God. Or if I have to go and perform some ceremony, if I touch this guy, I'm going to be late because I'm working with this guy. Um, Other people believe that maybe they thought to themselves, well, this man just got beat half to death. If I stay here and help him out, I too am going to get beat up half to death. And so you almost see that there's just a fear of them not wanting to sit here and help him. Um, And it's usually for self... Um, Self-gratification. If I stay here, I'm gonna get hurt. If I stay here, I can't do my job. If I stay here, I can't do what I'm supposed to do, and so I'm justified because there's no way that I can help him without helping myself. I think that's overall the point that Jesus is trying to point here, and so, so they leave, they bounce by, and they're just trying to get out of here. It's actually interesting because um, some of the, some of the different commentaries that I was reading they would point out that there's different laws in the in the in the Old Testament that would have had these men. Liable for leaving him that him on the ground, we know that in Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 22 it talks about if there's livestock or property that's left behind, that it's up to the person that walks by to see it to return it to his brother. And that's just property. If that's just livestock, to actually see somebody on the road that you could you can pick up and take somewhere else, they were breaking that law. Of course, then they would justify themselves in saying that there was another law that they had to super. And so, at the end of the day, the point is they were still breaking the law in that way, um, even when Jesus is talking uh, to the Pharisees in Matthew 9. Um, Jesus was, speak, he was He was there with, with, um, with the sinners, and he was eating, and he was, he was spending time with them. And they were casting aspersions that he would, even, he would even deal with them. And here Jesus gives that line. And this is Matthew 9. You guys don't have to turn there. You can go back later and check it out. Um, but he tells them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to the righteous, but the sinners. And I think he pulls that out of Hosea. And so here in that, in that section, the Lord is telling these Pharisees, you know, you're getting mad at me for spending time with these people who you call unclean or who you call sinners and, and revilers and people that don't deserve my presence. But that's not the, you know, but those are the people that need me the most. And here he's reminding them, the Lord does not care about your sacrifice. He cares about your mercy. He cares about when you come and give compassion to people. And in that, in that instance, that's what he tells them um, and so here we're seeing that these, these Pharisees are walking by, they're leaving them behind, they just don't care. And so now we get to this point where a Samaritan journeys by, sees him, and has compassion. The text almost implies that the, 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 word, the word used here is like, this Samaritan came here by chance. So he wasn't even supposed to really be here, he didn't owe anything to him, he just happened upon this man. And the fact that he happened upon this man and he had compassion, that word compassion in the original, in the original language, it's this idea of longing and yearning. Um, it's this idea that I'm just so—I just don't—I can't understand why this is happening, but I want to do something about it. Almost like you want to pull your your heart out of your chest and and do something to help this man. And so he's so moved with emotion. He was so moved with this compassion that he wants to help them. Um, the same word is used when Jesus looks upon the masses and he and he has this compassion over them of wanting to to heal them and to get into and, and, and to sustain them. So he goes down, and the, the word is he went to him, and in that, in that context, it's not that he walked up to his body and was like, hey, are you okay? This idea of he went to him is him literally getting on the ground, on his hands and knees, looking at him and, and, and being on his level, getting down to his level, getting close to him. This man that probably has open wounds, broken bones, and is a bloody mess, and he's literally getting down and putting himself on it. If he's a Samaritan, you know, he's still, whatever, whatever the, the history was for the Samaritans and why they're, why they're despised by the Jews, he still would have had some context of this idea of cleanliness, but he didn't care. He got down the ground, and he got to his level, and he went to him. We see this, and, it, and, it, and for him to go, to go down to him, he's, he's, he's saying a lot of things. He's going on the ground, and he is forsaking any idea of being worried about being robbed. He's saying, I don't care if I get robbed, I don't care if I get beaten to death, I don't care if I become unclean by touching this guy, I don't care if I'm ostracized by my people for convers- or for, for, talking, for working with a, with, a, with a Jewish man, I do not care about anything that is happening in this moment besides the fact that this man is hurt and I need to help him. You know, we think of the priest and the Levite that walk by, and in their head, they're running through a different scenario saying, there's no way I can help this guy because it's going to ruin my, it's going to ruin my day. And this guy says, I do not care about any of that. Let me get down here. Let me look at him. And it says that he binds up the wounds and he's pouring oil and wine. He's performing first aid. So it's not, it's not just, he gets down, sir, are you okay? Sir, can I call someone? Sir, you know, it's, it's not this idea of like, who, who can I call for them to help you? It's like, what can I do to help you? And he's performing first aid. Um, as he keeps going, he puts him on the animal, setting him on his animal. So if he had an animal, probably on his animal, he probably has his luggage, if he's, if he's, going, if he's going from town to town, he probably has goods and, and things that he bought at the market that he's traveling around town. He has his animal probably carrying a bunch of stuff on it, and usually he'd probably jump on it himself so he doesn't have to walk the, 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 the path that he's going on. But he decides to take this man, perform first aid, throw him on the animal, which then implies that he has to walk right? He's putting this man on his own animal, the animal that he's using to transport himself from from whatever city. And he's saying, you get on the animal, I'll walk. I don't know at what point in the road they are. I don't know how far he is from his destination. I don't know how far they are from the inn. The scripture really doesn't tell us, but he is saying, you're more important than I am right now. You need this more than I do. And he allows him to get on the animal and they take him to the inn. And so this idea of taking him to the inn, he puts him up, he continues to take care of him. He continues to watch over him. Um, and then he pays the inn and gives the inn money, two denarii, which would have been, I think, two, a denarii is a, is a, is a, a laborer's day wages. Um, I think they've done the math, and it's actually a little bit of money compared to our money now, but inflation is a killer. Um, but essentially, he's giving, he's giving him day's wages for the inn to pay for his room, pay for his stay, pay for his food, and then he doesn't even stop there. He goes beyond that, and he tells the innkeeper, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. You know, if he's leaving and this guy is staying there, you don't know what's going to happen. He could get even more sick. He could require more medical attention. If he stays for a week, you've got to pay for the food for a week. You've got to pay a room for a week. You've got to pay for all these He says, I do not care. Don't bother him. The, 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 the text there, the word there almost implies, do not burden this man with anything. Let him get the rest that he needs. Burden it on me. I will carry his burden. It's almost incredible to think that, as Jesus is saying this story, he knows that he is drudging up emo- like negative emotions in the people he's talking to. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews so badly. And for Jesus to tell this story and to put the Samaritan as the guy that's even better than the priests and the levites, he's he, he knows what he's doing. And so it's even interesting, it's even interesting to read this story and to see that, He's trying to prove a point. And so, again, in verse 36, he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. I honestly feel like the question's pointless. We already know what the answer is. I think halfway through the story, the lawyer is probably like, Okay, shoot. Like, I know what he's trying to say. But even the lawyer, he's just so against what, what, what Jesus is saying that he won't even say the Samaritan. He'll say... I guess the one that showed him mercy. I guess that guy. I guess those people, I guess, I guess he, he was his neighbor. And so it's almost funny because Jesus is asking a question, because who is my neighbor? And the Lord Jesus is like, well, who do you think his neighbor is? And i tell you the story. I'll tell you what happened. What is neighbor? Um, if we go and we look at that word neighbor, usually we think of this idea of the person that lives next door to us, maybe the people on our block, maybe the people that we have community with, even maybe the people at our chapel. But the word neighbor here, the base word just means near. It just means whoever is right next to you at the time. At, at the end of the day, the Lord wasn't trying to answer this question as, who is my neighbor like a noun, but who is my neighbor as an action? You know, a neighbor could be whoever's next door to you. That doesn't matter. A neighbor is the person that you run into on the street, at the grocery store, at the gas station at work. That's your neighbor. And that was the point that Jesus was trying to prove, was that this man that was on the road was your neighbor, and these two passed him by, but it was the Samaritan who stayed by. So, we were talking about Beth at the beginning of the message, um, and I guess you're probably wondering how the surgery went. They went in, they had the surgery, and Ben Carson was able to successfully remove the, 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 half, the, the hemisphere of the brain that was deteriorating, um, and he came out, and they said that she would no longer have seizures. Beth was actually awake for a little bit, and she said, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't have any seizures. Uh, but unfortunately, Beth fell into a coma. And the doctors didn't know why, they couldn't figure it out, they didn't know what was going on, and they know that just Beth fell into a coma. So the next day, the hospital gets a call, and they're told that a man claiming to be Fred Rogers is on the phone. And so they're saying he's looking for Mrs. Or Mrs. Usher, Beth, Beth's mom, and Beth is just blown away. So she picks up the phone, doesn't really believe that it would be Fred Rogers, and he goes, hey, I'm calling to check up on Beth, how is she doing? And the mom tells her, you know, the surgery was successful. They were able to take out the part of the brain they needed to. And she was fine for a little bit, but she fell into a coma, and they don't know if she'll ever get out of it. So Fred Rogers was okay, and he speaks to her. And, and, and in this documentary, he's saying that he, he ministered unto her, he talked to her, he prayed for her, and he told her, hey, I'm going to keep calling back, and I'm going to keep checking up on her. And so the story goes that, that she was the girl, uh, Beth was in a, in a coma for about two to three months, with no sign, no, 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 no changes, no signs of any, any any real activity. And so Mr. Rogers continues to call every single day. And he's calling and asking. He's praying with the mom, ministering unto her. And one day he tells her, is it okay if I come fly out and just spend time with Beth at her bedside? And the mom's almost like, w- why, why would you want to do that? And she goes, I just, I just have a need that I need to go and spend time with her. And she goes, if if that's what you want, that 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 that's fine. She, I think she's more blown away by anything. She just didn't know what to say, and she almost didn't want to, didn't want to burden him with having to come out and fly out. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever looked up some of the things that 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 Fred Rogers has done. Even during that time, I think uh, by the end of his TV show, they had over ni- he had almost 900 episodes that he recorded. Uh, he won, a pre- or he didn't win. He was given a, a Presidential Medal of Freedom. He had over 40 honorary degrees. Um, he was so important in his field that Congress and the Supreme Court actually asked him to come testify in various cases that had to do with um, censorship, um, TV for children, um, VCR recording, because he was okay with allowing it so people could watch his show. Um, but he, he, was so, he was so important in the, days of, of, in, the, in the daily lives of people that you would almost say, like, why, why would he want to come? But he did, and he flew out, and he actually asked the mom, don't tell anybody I'm coming because I don't want, I don't want there to be any, any, any brouhaha about the whole thing. So he flies out from, I think he was in Pittsburgh at the time, he flies out from Pittsburgh, goes to Baltimore where the story takes place, goes to the hospital, and he goes to her bedside, and he just talks to her, prays for her. He actually brought his, uh, his little uh, puppets with him, um, uh, King, uh, King Friday, uh, Daniel the Striped Lion, all of them. He brought them all with him, and he would actually perform for Beth at her bedside as she's in a coma um, for that day he prayed for her, prayed for the mom, prayed with the mom, told him that he would continue to to keep up and catch up with her and to check up on her. Um, And he asked her, can I leave these puppets here so that when Beth wakes up, she'll have them. And the mom's just blown away. And she goes, sure, sure, yeah, please. So he does. He flies back to Pittsburgh. And a few days later, Beth wakes up. You know, um, I'm not trying to make any correlation between, you know, what happened. I'm just saying Beth woke up. She woke up. She had the puppets on the bed. And her mother tells her, Fred Rogers came and visited you and prayed for you. And he's been checking every single day to see how you are. Well, the story doesn't end there. She eventually does come out of the hospital. She does have a semblance of a normal life. She's actually alive. I think she's still alive today. Um, and she, she's been living that life. And, and in this documentary, you find out even after... So now we're saying, okay, he was a good neighbor. He was a good guy. He checked up on her when she was sick. Came and visited her once. He already went above and beyond, right? He already did everything he could possibly done to do anything he can to try to help this girl. And even after she got better, he still called her every week. He talked to her once a week. He went out and visited, and I think uh, the, mom, the mom was on a committee for some college, and Beth was like, we should have Mr. Rogers speak at the college, and he said, okay. And he came, and he spoke at the college that his mom worked at for the graduating class, and they maintained a relationship until the day of his death in 2003. This guy who was who was probably one of the most well-known people of the time, took his time, took time out of his day, out of his schedule, out of his week. He's probably, he was probably doing so much. He he's has his TV show, working for nonprofits. Um, he was an ordained minister, so he's got all this work. He's, he's doing all these things, and he still made time to talk to her. And when you, when you watch his documentary, you know, Beth, Beth, I think, is probably in her 40s now, or during the time of, the, the, of, the, of the, that uh, the documentary. And to this day, she's blown away that he would ever do that to her. When she talks about him, she's crying, saying, like, there's no way this man could have ever loved me more than he did. And this man was the only, well, not the only, but at the time, he was the only friend that she had. And so she, to this day, was like, Fred Rogers saved my life. You know? It's this idea that he came, and he, he, he has this show where he tells, will you be my neighbor? And, you know, it, uh, you can put it on your show, and, and it's great. You know, you can, make a, you can make a movie about it. You can make a TV show about it. You can write a book about being someone's neighbor. But he went out, and he lived that life. You know, and I would say that when Jesus is telling this parable, he is saying, Your neighbor is the person near to you. Do that. You know, if the, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your, everything, and then love your neighbor as yourself, the Lord said, That is your neighbor, this is your neighbor, and this is how you love your neighbor. And so I would encourage every one of us in this room, um, you know, last week, Rod. Um, came up, he was giving the announcements, and, and I was blown away when he was talking about, about Al, our brother Al, how he's going through this surgery, and he, he had this infection, and he was struggling, and that we needed to reach out to Al, and, and, and for me, I don't want to embarrass Rod, he's not here, so if he ever listens to this message, he'll probably be embarrassed when he's listening to it, but to me, I thought that was such a great show of being, of being up here, and he could have just finished giving those announcements, We said, but we got to make sure we check on Al, you know, and I think, I think that us, we, we, and I'm not, I'm not saying we don't do that, I'm saying we do a great job of it, but I'm saying we should continue to do so. You know, it's easy to love the people that are close to you. It's easy to love your friends because, you know, you like them. It's easy to love people that are like you because it's easy to like them. But the Lord re- requires more than that. The Lord desires more than that. You know, the Lord desires that we go out and love people, love our neighbors, love the people next to us at work, everything. And so I would just encourage all of us that we would live out this idea of, of will, you, will you be my neighbor? You know, it's, just, it's such an incredible idea. I even think about the Lord... Um, the Lord God, that he would even send his son to earth to live amongst us as a neighbor. You know, the Lord God, he loved his creation so much that he didn't just want to stay in heaven. He would even have God incarnate himself, Jesus Christ himself, come to this earth and live amongst us. And that he would perform signs and miracles. He would bring healing to the sick. He would come and free people from their sin. He would give them eternal life. People came up to him and they had all these questions and he would answer these questions. And at the end of it, he would give his life for the, for, the, for, the, for the payment for sin. The Lord God himself would send his son and he would be our neighbor. He would come and he would He would give his life that every single person in this room could have eternal life. And that if we have this eternal life, this idea of if, how can I inherit eternal life? How can I spend an eternity with the Lord God himself? And Jesus came and he paid that price. He was like that guy on the road. He paid the price. He knew the price for sin was death. He paid it. He knew that we would continue to sin. He knew that every single one of us in this room is probably going to sin our entire lives. And he said, I'm going to pay for the sin up to this point. I'm going to pay for the sin in the future. And he came and he covered the entire cost. And he didn't. He never once did he ever desire for anything else. He doesn't desire works. He doesn't desire us to jump through hoops. He doesn't desire us to do anything other than to repent and come to that saving knowledge. So I would encourage anybody in this room who has not done that, that the... That they have not accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, They have not come to this point of, of this relationship with the God of the universe. To, to, to realize that God wants a relationship with you. He has a desire to be with you. He has a desire to know you. He has a desire to reveal himself to you. And he wants to do everything he can to provide for you. To give you that inheritance. To give you that eternal life. He's already paid the price. He doesn't want you to pay anything for that price. He just wants to have a relationship with you. And for those of us who have done that. For those of us who do know that. I would encourage us to continue to be that neighbor to people, to have that love for people, to have that love for those that are, that are lost, that are, that are scared, that are sick, that we go and we, and we do whatever we can to just provide for those that need it. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and we give you thanks. We give you thanks, Father, because we can see stories like this, Father, where we can see the character of God. We see that God does not care about ceremony. He doesn't care about the rules. He doesn't care about the law. He cares about compassion and mercy. He cares about having a relationship with you, Father. You care about us so much that you would give your son that he would come and die for our sins. We give you thanks, Father, that your, that your character is so apparent to us that we can come and just remember that you paid, that your son paid that price, that you love us so much that we were able to come into a relationship with you, Father, and that we would have an inheritance of eternal life. We just give you thanks for this time, Father, and just pray that you would be with us, Father, during this week, that you would show your face to us more and more, and that we can come to that, to that knowledge of being with you, Father. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.